it is Pride Month, so happy Pride Month to you. And I wanted to touch on this because I was frankly shocked when I read this article that the practice of conversion theory therapy, which is um, unscientific and can cause harm to those who undergo it, um, and there is a growing movement to make it illegal, it's actually still widespread in Canada. And this is according to recent research published published in the Canadian Journal of Psychology. Here to talk about it is um, a social epidemiologist at Simon Fraser University, co-publisher of the study. Travis Solway joins the show. Travis, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Kelly. You know, I I frankly thought the practice of conversion therapy was already illegal. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are with me on that. It seems very archaic, and we know that it it doesn't work. It's been proven not to work. What was the goal of your study? Yeah, this is a common response. Uh, even those of us who've worked in LGBTQ2 research for decades are surprised to be uncovering how commonplace conversion therapy is in Canada. We wanted to try to put a number on it. And the reason we wanted to do that is survivors of conversion therapy have been speaking up and they've been asking governments at all levels, municipalities, provinces, the federal government to take action. Uh, and we wanted to try to understand the scope of the problem. So we've, we've done a, a couple of surveys of Canadian LGBTQ2 people. Um, we have research colleagues in Ontario, uh, the TransPulse study, who's done a national study of transgender Canadians. Um, and between these surveys, we estimate uh, that upwards of 20 to 40,000 Canadians have been through this practice. Okay, I think we need to talk about conversion therapy. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us what actually that entails for people that have heard about it and they're not familiar with it? They also thought that it was something that was not being practiced anymore. Describe it. Yeah, conversion therapy. Uh, and, and, and I think, uh, you know, I want to acknowledge up front that it's not just one thing. Uh, we're talking about a collection of practices um, that share a common goal. And that common goal is to avoid having people who go through the therapy identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, queer, transgender. Uh, this is um, a practice that's changed a lot over time. So historically, we saw examples of, you know, as you said earlier now, uh, scientifically discredited practices, things like electroshock therapy or aversion therapy that tried to condition people away from having same-sex attraction or, or uh, feelings of gender identity that are different from their sex at birth. Um, today, a lot of conversion therapy looks like um, counseling or coaching um, that's a little bit more behavioral in nature. Uh, so this means these are practices that try to get people um, to acknowledge, uh, in the case of sexual orientation, their feelings of same-sex attraction, but not to act on them. So, um, you know, how to avoid what they would describe as kind of unwanted feelings um, and how to uh, stick with uh, a heterosexual uh, sexual orientation identity. Did you get an indication of how many people are forced into conversion therapy or how many people are freely entering it? That's a great question. We, we're doing uh, more research this summer because there is a, a federal bill uh, that's been tabled, Bill C-8. Uh, that aims to add a measure to the, the criminal code to make it illegal um, to practice and also to, to coerce people into conversion therapy. Uh, we're still gathering those statistics. Right now, uh, based on the surveys we've done, it, we think it's about 50-50 in terms of the age distribution. So about half of people went when they were um, still a minor. Um, and that is often a situation that happens where a parent uh, or a caregiver adult uh, in that child's life just hasn't received any information about 
um, the fact that you can be lesbian, gay, or bisexual, transgender, queer, and be happy and healthy. And in the absence of that information, conversion therapy looks like a good alternative. Um, now, whether those youth are coerced or kind of gently nudged in the direction um, is an interesting one. But if you think about it, if that uh, teenager's only choice for staying at home and having uh, housing and food and to be connected to their family is to go through these practices, uh, it's not really much of a choice. You know what struck me about um, your study and conversion theory in the whole is that it's it's rooted in shame and it results in even more shame. Can you tell us a little bit about that, people that survived conversion therapy and, and what they're dealing with now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of why people are surprised the numbers are so high is that um, a lot of people who've been through conversion therapy don't want to talk about it. Um, and in part, this is because it leaves them with feeling bad about themselves, uh, doubting themselves, sometimes hating themselves, which can unfortunately lead to, to feelings or thoughts of suicide. Can I interrupt um, for a second? When they yeah. doubt themselves or hate themselves, is that because the conversion therapy, uh, which seeks to change a person's sexual orientation, didn't work? So now they're thinking, oh, what's wrong with me? This didn't even work on me. I, I mean, is that adding more uh, injury to existing uh, shame and, and injury that they perceived originally? Yeah, I mean, all LGBTQ people will know. Um, and if, if you know people in your life who are lesbian or gay or bisexual or trans, um, you've probably seen this in them. Um, you grow up kind of knowing that there's something different about yourself um, and not being quite sure what to do with it. Um, but it is something that's really core to our being, our, our, our sexuality or our gender. And um, when you're being taught to deny or suppress that part of yourself, it makes you doubt other things about yourself. And it makes you doubt whether there's even a future um, for who you are, for, for your true self. So you're absolutely right. They actually, they tap into these really deep-rooted sense of, of who we are, and they fight against it. And once we've internalized those messages, which we don't need conversion therapy to do, um, there's lots of messages around us as we grow up, even though we've seen dramatic gains in the legal rights uh, and social status of, of lesbian and gay people in Canada, there's still these cues. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to date a woman? Are you sure uh. that uh, this isn't the right path for you? Um, and those really get ingrained in us. And so, yeah, that's what contributes to those uh, negative feelings that stay with people who've been through conversion therapy. What shocked you most about your study on conversion therapy? I, the, sh the sheer number, I think, um, so to go back to what you were saying earlier, I think the reason, you know, so if people are uh, have been through this and they're left with feelings of self-doubt, um, let's suppose they, they uh, eventually connect with um, the gay community and they're able to, to make social connections there. There's additional reasons why they may not tell um, their, their new friends um, or even romantic partners that they've been through it. Um, and that's because sometimes when they share that information, they're met with disbelief um, or judgment. Why would you put yourself through that? And so it's, as you said, it's shame upon shame. <laughs> and so that just leaves this very much a hidden problem. It's something that people don't talk about. And as we know, if you don't talk about something, it, it, it can get a lot worse. Um, and so I think that's how this, this problem has really spread and gone unaddressed in Canada. Uh, I think the numbers are important, but even more important are the stories. Um, we have conversion therapy survivors uh, in your province in Ontario. 
uh, Erica Muse and Matt Ashcroft are incredibly brave um, survivors who've been speaking out about the experiences they've been through, um, and they've taught me a lot of about uh, what's happening and what we need to do next to support people who've been through it. And what do we need to do next? Do we need to um, uh, push the federal government and provinces to come up with an all-out ban on the practice? Yes, a ban is an important uh, component of our response. Uh, the ban does a few different things. One is um, in the case where uh, conversion therapy is still happening, it gives some kind of recourse to the people who are threatened with having to go. Um, it also validates the experience of those tens of thousands of Canadians who are left feeling uh, traumatized and also invisible. It tells them we see what you've been through, uh, and we don't uh, we we don't condone it. It's not compatible with Canadian values. Beyond that, though, we need um, we do need mental health supports for survivors, and in some cases, these might look a bit different from mental health supports that we need for the LGBTQ community more broadly. And we also need um, at an early age to be getting messages to youth and to their parents that being lesbian or gay or bisexual, transgender, queer is compatible with a happy and healthy life. And the earlier and the more times we get those messages to youth and to their parents, the better the opportunity is that they won't ever consider conversion therapy because they won't have any reason to doubt who they are. Yeah, we have to stop the need to control other people. It's It just gets us nowhere. Um <laughs> Travis, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thanks so much for joining us. It's an important topic to touch on, especially because here we are in, in, in Pride Month, and unfortunately all the celebrations have gone um, online, but I think it's important that we touch on these topics and make people aware of there are struggles that people are still dealing with in the LGBTQ community, and I think there is something that we can all do to help them. Thank you for having me.